Well, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. If you have a Bible handy, please open to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. Our sermon text for today will go from verse 16 down to verse 37. Now I urge you to give your attention to the Word of God as I read this story from the Gospel of John 19. So he delivered him over to be crucified. They took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar, of, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. That is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says... Amen. Well, I don't need to remind you 
that last year was a terrible year for many people. In recent days, what has filled the news feeds is that many celebrities lost their lives. I took some time to go back through the list of celebrities to figure out why they died, how long they lived, what were the circumstances surrounding the deaths of all of these well-known people. And you might be surprised to learn that many of them died just of natural causes. Painful natural causes, but natural causes nonetheless. They were taken away into death by cancer and by heart attacks, by old age, by Alzheimer's disease, by dementia, by tragic accidents, septic shock, broken hearts, overdoses, suicide. And the thing that they all have in common is that each and every one of them died. No matter the means, death came to each one of them. And for us, it's a vivid reminder that death is coming to each of us. We will all meet the Grim Reaper at some point. The most tragic thing about all of these celebrity deaths is not that celebrities died, but that people made in the image and likeness of God died apart from Jesus Christ. I've seen people in my circle of influence grieve the loss of different celebrities. Maybe they were movie stars or musicians or politicians or someone, and they grieve their loss because now something is missing from the world. But I'm sad to report that I've seen very few, if any, in my circle of friends lament the fact that many of these celebrities died apart from Christ who laid down his life as an atoning sacrifice, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The tragedy is not that people die because of heart attacks, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, drug overdoses, or tragic accidents. The tragedy is that people live in this life and they die apart from Jesus Christ. And that is what we should lament. That is what should grieve our hearts. Well, this evening I want to tell you a story about another celebrity that lost his life. And to say he lost his life is inaccurate. It's more accurate to say a celebrity who laid down his life for others. And I say celebrity because he was a man who was well-known, a man who had a popular following, a man who was known in his community as being someone special, spectacular. He was famous on one hand for those who loved him. He was infamous on the other for those who despised him. And his name is Jesus Christ. We just heard the story from the Gospel of John where John describes for us the death of Jesus Christ. He describes for us the circumstances and the conditions under which Jesus died. And I want to enter into that story with you again tonight and unpack some things that are not so easy to see on the surface reading of the story. And I want to connect some dots for you. So bear with me. You might be thinking, I know this story. I've heard this story a hundred times. But I want to suggest to you that you've never heard the story like you will hear it tonight. Not because this message or this messenger is so special, but because every hearing of the gospel is fresh and new. 
And so open your hearts and open your minds to receive the gospel of Christ delivered to you tonight. It's New Year's Day. And some of you might be thinking, I came to worship on New Year's Day and I expect a New Year's Day sermon. I want you to tell me about resolutions and commitment and how to make things right this year. But I want to suggest to you that it is fitting that we are talking about the cross of Christ on New Year's Day because Jesus was crucified at the time of the Passover. And if you know your biblical history well enough, you'll know that the Passover was New Year's for the people of God. It was a time when God brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness and led them towards the promised land. It was the time they marked the beginning of life. And so today is New Year's. Not our exodus from Egypt, but it's New Year's. And we think about new life and new things all brought about by the cross of Christ. And so it was with the crucifixion of Jesus that God began a new thing. Heaven and earth came together. God's kingdom broke into the world. And the world was, in fact, made anew through the death of Jesus. Our story says that Pilate delivered, them, delivered him over to them to be crucified. And we pick up where we left off last time. It's been a couple of weeks now, but we pick up where we left off last time with Pilate trying to appease the Jewish crowds and trying to make sure that the crowds did not revolt and riot and cause trouble in the city. And so he has given Jesus, a man that he declared to be innocent and not guilty of any crime, he's given Jesus over to them to be crucified. And the story goes that Jesus goes out of the city bearing his own cross to a place that looks like a skull. Bearing his own cross, not a light two by four, not a twig, but a beam of wood that weighed somewhere between 60 and 80 pounds. And he carries it out. This will be the instrument of his execution. The prophet Isaiah says, Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And so he gets out to the place of the skull, and he is laid out on the ground atop this horizontal beam. And there they crucified him with two others, one on either side. We learn elsewhere that these are robbers. And remember, Jesus has taken the place of a robber named Barabbas. And so he dies the death of a criminal. They crucified him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He's laid out on this beam. And he is crucified, not nicely and beautifully strapped to a beam of wood, but ferociously and terribly pinned to this beam of wood by spikes that are driven through his wrists. Spikes that are five to seven inches long, long enough to reach through his flesh on both sides and into the wood beam. This is done so that when he is lifted up, these spikes will help him support the weight of his body without tearing through his hands. 
When he is lifted up, his arms will stretch. More than likely, his shoulders will be dislocated. His arms might stretch as much as six inches. Immediately, he will feel the effects of crucifixion, not only because the cruciate nerve is crushed in his wrist, but also because from this moment on, he will strain to take every breath, to inhale, to exhale. He's already been flogged. He's already had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He has passed a night without sleep. He hasn't eaten since the night before with his disciples. He's witnessed the abandonment of his friends who fled and left him alone. So taken together, the emotional, spiritual, and physical conflict raging through his life in this moment, and then he is suspended between heaven and earth. The pain of the nails through the wrist is so terrible that a word was invented to describe it. The word excruciate means out of the cross, and it describes the pain that one felt when he or she was crucified. Most people who were crucified in this way died of asphyxiation. They simply suffocated to death, or in the fight and the struggle to stay alive, they suffered cardiac arrest. Their hearts would break, explode, and they would die. Now in the midst of all of this, Pilate has decided to put an inscription on the cross. And the inscription is to declare to everyone who sees why Jesus was crucified. And the inscription says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Of course, the Jews protest, and they began to throw a fit over this, as they have through the whole course of these events. But I think there are two reasons why Pilate did this. On one hand, he wanted everyone to know why Jesus was crucified. That's the most common reason. But I think there's another reason here. And it's speculation on my part, but I will say it to you. I think he wrote it because it's what he actually believed about Jesus. Remember how he was afraid of Jesus and things that were said of Jesus and a little bit nervous about handing Jesus over. An innocent man who claimed to be the Son of God. An innocent man who claimed to be a king. Pilate is unsure about what to do with him. And so this is his chance to take one last jab at the Jewish mob and at the Jewish crowd and to say what he actually thinks. Whatever the case, the whole world now knows that Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews, and they can read it in multiple languages as they pass by the crossroads going in and out of the city of Jerusalem. We're told here that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, their work was done, and so now it's playtime. And they take the garments of Jesus and divide them into four parts, except for the tunic, Seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Many people wonder where a poor builder, a poor carpenter, a poor rabbi would get such a luxurious item. It's possible that someone made it for him and gave it to him as a gift, but the point is everyone here recognizes that it's something special, something unique, and it's not worth tearing up. It's actually worth preserving. And so they begin to gamble and play and try to find a way to win this prized possession. Little do they know that they are gambling for this prize because God's Word says they will do this very thing. 
Throughout this narrative, John uses this phrase, to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill the scripture, to fulfill the scripture. In other words, John wants us to see that what is unfolding in this story is not chance or circumstance, but it is something that has been orchestrated by God, that his word has predicted and prophesied these events. And so while the soldiers are gambling and playing and try to get Jesus' garments, they are unwittingly fulfilling the scriptures which say, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, if you read the story carefully enough, you will see John taking portions of the law and the prophets and the Psalms, and he puts them all in the mouth of Jesus, attaches them to the story of Jesus. All of this is to indicate to us, the reader, that all of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus Christ. That everything unfolding in this story is unfolding because God's word has determined that it will unfold in this way. The soldiers are doing their thing according to the scriptures and they don't know they're doing it according to the scriptures. Standing by the cross of Jesus, we see this remarkable scene. Soldiers playing, gambling on the ground or perhaps at a table, but standing near the cross of Jesus, a remarkable picture is given to us here by John the Apostle when he tells us that standing by the cross of Jesus were three Marys, the mother of Jesus, his aunt, and Mary Magdalene, a friend. Three Marys. Why is that significant? It's significant because in a story that has been dominated by men, a story that has centered on men who are supposed to be strong and courageous, all the men are gone. Instead, we see three women standing near the cross of Jesus and in their midst, the disciple whom Jesus loved. These women are strong. They are courageous. They are bold. They are faithful to Jesus. Something I want you to notice in this story is that Jesus is aware of his surroundings, that Jesus is conscious of his environment. The story tells us that he saw his mother. He could identify her. He recognized the disciple whom he loved. He could distinguish between people. And in the midst of all of this, he knows that the story that he's involved in, the drama of redemption is being fulfilled, that it is about to be finished. He is aware of his surroundings. He is conscious of what is taking place. And in the midst of all of this sorrow and pain and agony, in a moment when you would expect someone in his position to simply be self-centered and to make it about himself and to only be concerned about his own well-being, he looks out from the cross and he sees these individuals and he takes it upon himself to speak to them. Now you mothers, listen carefully. Imagine seeing your own son in that kind of condition, in that state. You're not looking anywhere else. You don't care about soldiers on the ground. You're not worried about what's happening with the Jewish mob. You don't care about inscriptions. You care about one thing, and that is your son is on the cross and he's dying. And there's nothing you can do. And it's in that moment that Jesus looks out and he sees his mother and he says, Woman, behold your son. 
It's possible for a moment that Mary, looking up at Jesus on the cross, was thinking, I am beholding my son. I haven't seen anything else for the last three hours. And then she realizes that he means not me. John, woman, behold your son. Stop gazing at me. Stop worrying about me. Behold your son. And to the disciple whom Jesus loves, he says, Behold your mother. It's a curious story, isn't it? We know from the scriptures that Jesus had other brothers. Mary had other sons. It's apparent from this story that she was a widow. Jesus, as the firstborn son of Mary, is in charge of her. And even in this moment, he's taking care of her, looking out for her. It makes you wonder, where are her other sons? Up to, up to this point, they haven't followed Jesus. They think Jesus is crazy. Maybe they're not willing to bring their mother into their home. Maybe Jesus knows it wouldn't be good for her to go there, so he gives her to the disciple whom he loved, and he takes her into his home. Whatever the case, I want you to notice again in the story that Jesus knows that all is about to be fulfilled. He's not delusional. He's not emotional. He's not a basket case. He's not acting irrationally. He's not hallucinating. He is aware. He knows that all is now finished. And in order to fulfill the scripture, he says, I thirst. I thirst. It's likely that he hasn't had a thing to drink since the night before at the Passover meal. He certainly didn't have anything to drink through the course of the night of trial and judgment and beatings and floggings. He hasn't had anything to drink. He says, I thirst. The irony of this is that in the context of John's gospel, Jesus has repeatedly appeared as the one who gives others something to drink. It was at the wedding of Cana when they ran out of wine that he called his mother the first time. She tried to get him involved. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And yet, to reveal his glory, he turns water into wine. It was at the well in Samaria that he met a woman and he said to her, I'm thirsty. He was tired and sitting by the well and he asked her for a drink. It's unclear in the story whether she actually gave him a drink, but he thirsted enough physically that he wanted a drink. And they get into a little argument, a little theological debate. And it's in that theological debate that Jesus turns the tables on her and says to her, if you knew who I was, if you knew who was sitting before you, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you living water. Fast forward a few chapters and they're at a festival. And on the great and last day of the festival, Jesus says, as the drink offerings are being poured out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and I will give him living water. Streams will flow from him. And now the one who promised living water says, I thirst. 
I thirst. In the context of the scriptures, thirst is always a bad thing. Thirst is portrayed as a sign of curses, of faith testing, of physical need, a sign of exile or deep spiritual longing. And all of those things come together in Jesus on the cross. They come together in his thirst on the cross. It is at the cross that Jesus was thirsty. And while he was thirsty for water, he was actually thirsty for much more than water. If you take the words of the psalmist and put them into the mouth of Jesus at this point, you learn that Jesus' soul thirsted for God, for the living God, that he thirsted for his Father, his whole being, longed for him in a dry and weary land where there was no water. He spread out his hands to the Father, and he thirsted for his Father like a parched land. Now, in response to Jesus' confession to being thirsty, the soldiers stop playing their game. They jump up and they pretend that they're going to help him. They take a branch of hyssop and they attach a sponge to it and they dip the sponge into sour wine and they lift it up to his mouth. And this is to fulfill what the scripture said in Psalm 69, the scriptures say, Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. It is significant that the word hyssop is used here to describe what the soldiers did. Again, they don't understand the significance of it, but we do from reading God's Word. We know that on the night of the Passover, the very first Passover, remember what happened. Each family took a lamb and they slaughtered the lamb and they took the blood of that lamb and they took hyssop and dipped it in the blood and they painted the door frames of their homes to keep the destroyer away from them. Jesus is being crucified at the time of the Passover. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there you have hyssop present. At one time it was used to paint blood on the posts. Other times it was used in purification rites to cleanse the unclean from their sins. And that's exactly what's happening here in the death of Jesus. Another thing about that sponge. It's not your basic sponge that you use for washing dishes. It's not even the kind of basic sponge used for washing a body that is sweaty and dirty. Roman soldiers kept these sponges around to wipe themselves when they relieved themselves from going to the restroom. It's this kind of sponge that they use to add insult to injury to a man that they have grown to despise, a man that rivals their Caesar. And so we see in this story that Christ died the death of a criminal so that criminals could live the life of the Christ. 
We see in this story that the Savior died the death of sinners so that sinners can live the life of the Savior. When Jesus received the sour wine, it was then that he said, it is finished. Three words in English, one word in Greek, and the Greek word means, as it's used across the board, paid in full. Whatever the cost of our redemption, whatever the cost of our ransom, whatever the price of our salvation was fully, totally, and perfectly paid by Jesus Christ at this moment. He declared it to be so. And it's this, in this word that we hear the good news of God's grace and mercy. It's in this word that we hear the gospel that we cannot and do not have to pay anything for our redemption. Why? Because Christ has paid it all. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus is accomplishing redemption on behalf of his people. And the world goes on. People are unaware, blind to these realities, ignorant of what God is doing in this moment. All they can see is that a man who caused some trouble in the Middle East is hanging on a cross like so many others have done. What they cannot see in this moment is what God is accomplishing through this death. Now, the people are hyper-religious. They're so religious, in fact, that they want to get this over with quickly. They want these guys to die. They want them off the crosses. They want them off scene, out of sight and out of mind. Why? Because if these guys are hanging on the cross when the sun goes down, the land will be cursed, according to God's law. And they can't have the land being cursed because tomorrow they have a great festival that they want to participate in. And they've traveled from great distances to get their religion on. And so they want to wipe their hands of this. Legs are broken. Guys are taken off the cross. But before they get to Jesus, they find out that before they get to Jesus to break his legs, they realize he's already dead. And Roman soldiers can't have anyone faking death on their watch and so someone takes a spear wisely I might add and they ram it up into his side to make sure that he's dead and it is out of his pierced side that blood and water flow an indication that this was a real man a true man a human being who has expired from the point of view of the Romans and the Jews, the point of view of the eyewitnesses in the story, this man was a victim. He was a victim of circumstance, a victim of politics, a victim of a corrupt system of justice. From the point of view of the observers in the story, from a natural point of view, this was a man who died by crucifixion. But from the point of view of those of us who are reading the gospel, we know something else is going on here. That this man is not a victim. This man is a victor. His life was not taken from him, as it appears, but he laid down his life 
for his people. He knew what was coming to him. He knew what he would suffer. He knew that he would die. And yet, he goes straight into the storm of crucifixion. And he never relinquishes control. He never loses charge. He never gives himself over to the whims of men. He goes to the cross humbly and obediently and willingly. He is not marching to the beat of a Roman drum. He is not being cast and moved around by a Jewish mob. He goes to the cross because his Father has sent him into the world for this purpose, and he has accomplished the purpose for which he was sent. Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't die when the effects of crucifixion overcame him. Jesus gave up his spirit, laid down his life as and when he was ready to do so. The Apostle John is standing there nearby when all of this happens. He sees it unfolding and he gives us his testimony. Now we might ask, why would John give us his testimony? Why would John share this story with us? If John were a contemporary pastor, he probably would have shared the story with us because he wants to get an emotional reaction out of the congregation. It's always good on the Lord's Day when people shed a few tears or they're emotionally moved in some way. You feel like you've really accomplished something as a preacher. But John is not so shallow and superficial as that. John says, I, get, I give you my testimony. I'm telling you what I saw. I'm telling you what I heard. I'm telling you all these things for this one reason, that you also may believe. That you also may believe. Now again, he says, all these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. It was Exodus, Numbers, and the psalmist who said none of his bones would be broken. And it was the prophet Zephaniah, or Zechariah who said they will look on him whom they have pierced. What's interesting about Zechariah's prophecy is immediately after he says that in his book, the very next thing he says is that on that day, when they look on the one that they have pierced, on that day, a fountain will be opened to cleanse sins. William Cooper, a hymn writer, friend of one of the greatest pastors we've ever known, composed the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood based on that promise in Zechariah. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The disciple whom Jesus loved was standing right there near the cross and he says, I'm telling you this so that you may believe. <clears throat> but notice this. What does he want you to believe? Does he simply want you to believe that Jesus lived and that he was crucified? If that's all he wants you to believe, then you and every historian in the world would say, yes, Jesus lived and was crucified. That is all well attested. No, John wants you to believe more than that. 
John wants you to believe not just that Jesus was crucified, but he wants you to believe the reasons why he was crucified. He wants you to believe that Jesus accomplished the work of atonement for your sins and the sins of the whole world at the cross. He wants you to believe that Jesus turned aside God's wrath from sinners like you and reconciled sinners like you to God. He wants you to believe that Jesus carried away your sins as far as the east is from the west. He wants you to believe that Jesus exchanged his life for your life. That he exchanged his death for your death and his righteousness for your sin. He wants you to believe that Jesus counts sinners like you as though they were righteous like him. He wants you to believe that Jesus prays for his people, that he is an advocate for them with the Father, that he is a mediator between God and men. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Word made flesh for the life of the world. He wants you to believe that Jesus' death on the cross totally, fully, and perfectly accomplished the work of redemption. In the aftermath of the cross, sinners like you may be converted and healed and comforted and forgiven and changed and loved by God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He wants you to believe that Jesus did not suffer and die on the cross just to make salvation a theoretical possibility or that he suffered and died to make salvation possible for people. He wants you to believe that Jesus died to make salvation an existential reality for you. In other words, he did not die to make sinners savable. He died to save sinners. According to Scripture, he gave his life as a ransom to save the many. The suffering servant laid down his life for his sheep. He shed his blood at the cross to purchase redemption and ransom for many, many sinners. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus reminded people that he would be lifted up. He predicted that he would be lifted up. And each time he said something like this, that he would be lifted up in order that he may draw all kinds of people to himself to ransom a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Lifted up so that the world may know that he is the Son of Man. Lifted up so that the world may know that he has authority from God the Father. Lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now my question for you this evening as we come to the end is this. Are you one of the many for whom Jesus gave his life at the cross? And how would you know? How can you know if Jesus gave his life to redeem your life? How can you know if Jesus laid down his life to ransom you? These questions are important because it is so easy for us to presume on God's grace, to assume that, of course, Jesus died for me. He died for everyone. But that's not what he said, is it? He said he came to lay down his life for his sheep, and clearly not everyone is a part of his sheep. 
So how do you know? How can you know if Jesus laid down his life for you? Would you like to know? Here's the answer. The only way. And by only, I mean only. The only way you can know is if you turn and trust in him. Seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. So unless you turn from your sins and trust Jesus Christ for his saving power, the cross will be of no value to you. Unless you believe the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, Christ will be of no value to you. You must turn and trust him. Now, I've been at this a long time, not as long as some, but long enough to know that it avails nothing to assume or to speculate that Jesus died for a few or for many or for all. That's a fun theological debate, fun theological discussion. But it avails nothing to talk about those things if you personally do not turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Why does it matter to you, the number for whom Jesus died, if you are not one who turns and trusts in him? So let me end with these questions. Do some soul searching. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross in your place? Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe he carried all your sins to the cross and that all your sins were punished at the cross? Do you believe that God loves you with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you believe he revealed his love to you through the death of his son at the cross? If you believe these things, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad for you will be saved and you will have eternal life in Christ. If you do not yet believe these things, let us pray with you. Let us help you. Let us share life together with you that you may come to believe these things. And if you do not believe these things, we urge you with all your heart to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world.